Hello and welcome to the menu, Monocle Radio's food and drink program. I am Markus Hippi. This week, how Claire Patak made her Violet Bakery one of the most famous cake shops in London, so much so that she was invited to make a cake for a royal wedding. Literally, overnight, news crews like showed up and kind of camped out. <laughs> Violet, it was so bizarre. Also ahead. It's very unusual for me to pour wine while sitting. <laughs> Usually I stand. Good, so what happens now? Well, first of all, we say cheers. Cheers. <laughs> we meet Mark Almert, one of the world's best sommeliers. All that and more ahead on the menu here on Monocle Radio. Claire Patak is the chef and owner of Violet Bakery Cake Shop in East London. Before moving to London, she spent years working as pastry chef at Alice Waters Chez Panisse Restaurant in California. In London, she opened Violet Bakery in 2010, and the place soon became a cult destination. The word spread to such an extent that Claire was asked to prepare a cake for Harry and Meghan's royal wedding in 2018. Now, Claire Claire has released her latest book. It's called Love is a Pink Cake, Irresistible Bakes for Morning, Noon and Night. She joined me in the studio to talk about the release and the story of Violet Bakery. This one was, it started out being a book about seasonal baking, so seasonality and baking. But then because I was writing it during the pandemic and we weren't able to shoot when we wanted to shoot and we couldn't do the four seasons, it became a totally different book. <laughs> so I kind of had to, sh- we shot it half in England and then half in the U.S. And then I rewrote the book after the shoot. So <laughs> so it's really about um, where I'm from in California and how that's influenced what I do here in England and kind of stories about the bakery and stories about growing up in Northern California. I would imagine that's quite a big topic. You have divided this book into into two bits. There's California and there is England. Yeah. I have to ask, when you think about what your baking style was like when you moved to London from California, how has England changed what you do? Changed and shaped. Yeah, it's shape is a good word. It's changed the sort of look and feel of it a lot, I think. The thing that's really the through line is the ingredients that I choose and how I choose my ingredients. But when I came here, I I just quickly noticed that there was like a certain different palette that people had here in the UK. And even though people associate American baking with uh, a lot of sugar and color, food coloring and stuff. I never, I never did that because I'm a Northern California hippie. So you know, it was like always um, healthier and kind of using whole grain flours and uh, unrefined, less refined sugars. But but I definitely had like a different aesthetic. And then living here for the last it's almost 18 years now, um, yeah, it's really changed and shaped the way I sort of see the food that I'm creating. So. Yeah. You talk about different palettes, different ingredients. On a more philosophical level, do you see a difference as you write how here in England the word cake covers much more, <laughs> for example? It, it's true. I love the way people just kind of use that blanket term for all sweet things. Um, you know, people say like, oh, come for cake or let's go have cake or look at all these cakes. And I'm like, there's one cake and then there's like cookies, you know, brownies, whatever. But it's like this... I think the word for people here really is associated with love. So the title, I think, uh, makes a lot of sense with the way people 
think about this sweet treat here in the UK, yeah. When you moved here over 15 years ago, were there some things that took time to get used to when you think about those differences <laughs> in baking? What were the most confusing bits? Um, gosh, there was so much to get used to. I feel like I was shell-shocked when I moved here. <laughs> um, the availability was was a big one because... Actually, I started Violet because there were not any cake bakeries that I felt like I wanted to go to. But um, yeah, no, I just felt like it, there was a real gap in the market for what I wanted to create. And also, yeah, I just think in California, you know, we don't really eat raisins. I mean, California raisins are like, fa- California's famous for raisins, California raisins, but we don't really eat raisins. We don't really like, like we would pick them out here. Everybody was like going crazy for, you know, uh, Christmas pudding and Christmas cake and mince pies filled with raisins and all these like kind of dried fruits. <laughs> I was like, this is so unusual. <laughs> so I had to really kind of adjust and adapt. But I I really actually fell in love with those things too and the and the flavors that are so beloved here. So I got into it. Just talking about the recipes you have in this book, the sections California and and England. If you talk about those recipes, how how different are these sections then? You know, honestly it was difficult because of how much time I've spent here and this is my home now here in the UK to really separate them. They've kind of fused in some ways, but what I wanted to do was highlight the recipes that I grew up with in California and also show some of the fun traditional English recipes that I learned about when I came here, like treacle tart and sticky toffee pudding and angel cake, which are things that I think are very nostalgic for people here. So they all have a bit of both, a bit of my California style and a bit of my my new home kind of flair. <laughs> so, yeah, it's hard to totally separate them, but there's classics in each that are, that are 100% from those places, and then I've put my little sort of twist on them. So. What are your favorites? Um, definitely in the in the England section, I love angel cake. I mean, this is like a cake that is pink and yellow and filled with this kind of almondy vanilla buttercream, which is... Um, kind of the antithesis to what I talk about in my work (laughs) with um, fruit-focused seasonal baking. But this cake is really so kind of, it just makes you smile. And my daughter and I discovered it together in a corner shop one day after swimming class. So um, it just it has a lot of fond memories for me, and, and people seem to really like it. So, um, And then in the California section, I'd say um, any of the pies. I have a grape pie, which I adore. I uh, have blackberry pie, which is also a favorite that has some chili pepper in it, which is unusual, and um, it's a favorite recipe too. So, I think it's interesting that in the in this book you talk about your your trusted suppliers of fruit and vegetables, and that is something I talk regularly with with chefs who are working with yeah. in restaurants. And I think this discussion is is rarer when it comes to bakeries. Tell me about these entrepreneurs you work with. Yeah, I mean, we couldn't do what we do without them. So it's really a special connection and relationship that we build with these growers. I obviously, my background as a pastry chef at Chez Panisse in Berkeley was really the, you know, the foundation for that kind of understanding. But I also grew up um, where we went to the farmer's market and foraged, you know, for berries and other things, you know, uh, with my family. So I just feel like it's something that is so important and also you know there's a cause there's kind of a divide that happens where people feel like sometimes when they hear I think chefs talking about this like oh that's really nice for you and it's really expensive and hard to do and and procure but um I think the more we talk about it and the more we make it 
understood, then the more people will have accessibility to it and the cheaper it will get if it's, you know, if they can make more. Um, so I think that um, we got to keep talking about it. <laughs> and with baking, it's essential because, I mean, so much baking is fruit-based and especially what, what I love to do is. And so, you know, the other thing is that when you work with farmers, you get ingredients that have incredible flavor, um, much, much better than what has been on a supermarket shelf for weeks. <laughs> so uh, so for me, it's also because it's all about flavor. <laughs> you opened your bakery, Violet, in, in East London some 15 years ago. Yeah. How much has it changed over the years? What has the evolution been like? Well, yeah. So when I, I moved, <laughs> there's a funny story that I tell friends that like when I moved to Hackney from California, there was no nowhere to get a coffee, like anywhere to get a coffee. So my um, my former husband and I would go to the Homerton Hospital to get a coffee because <laughs> <laughs> it was the only place where they had an espresso machine. <laughs> and it was like some terrible like... It was called Ritazza, and it was fine, sorry, Ritazza, but it was like a chain, and it was the best thing you could find, you know. Um, there was no artisanal coffee at all. And so, um, yeah, so now I think there's one on, there's three on every block. You mm-hmm. know, it's wild. But also there was an artist community um, already in East London that, and a lot of fashion designers in East London. So it felt like a really natural place to go. And also there was a really strong community of people. And unfortunately, like some of that changes with gentrification. So, yeah, <laughs> it's mixed. I feel mixed about it. And how has the bakery itself changed over the years when you think about the evolution of that place? Oh, my God. So, well, when I, I I've been in the same location. So we found the location and it was really run down and it was the only thing I could afford. <laughs> but it was we painted it and we sort of um, just like it was going to be actually just a kitchen to cook out of and supply markets but then our 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 customers from the market were basically coming and knocking on the door and being like is this violet is violet opening a bakery you know what's happening here so I was like okay I've got to open a bakery and then it, it pretty quickly became known so I mean the first few I guess the first couple of years it was pretty quiet but there was people searching it out which is always really exciting and now yeah now it's for sure discovered. <laughs> I know, and, and something that helped people to discover that place was probably a certain royal wedding some yeah. years ago. I remember <laughs> I actually lived quite close to your bakery and remember walking past one morning and you had a few television camera crews outside Were reporting. Yeah, it was wild. That's so funny that you saw that because literally... Um, so I was asked by Megan and Harry to make their wedding cake. I think it was January before their May wedding. Um, and they announced it a couple of months later. So it must have been, I think, yeah, I think it was March that they announced that I was going to be making the cake. And literally overnight, news crews like showed up and kind of camped out <laughs> Violet, it was so bizarre. Um, and I don't know why. I mean, like, what were they expecting to see two months before or what they, you know, I don't know. It was very funny. But that certainly transformed our business as well. And, and after all of that kind of went away, um, you know, we just had a lot of great customers from, from that um, event. <laughs> How do you feel about that experience now some years later? Do you advertise that in your, in your bakery? Is that visible oh, anywhere there? Have you, are you, are you, are you serving anything that reminds people <laughs> of the cake or anything like that? Yeah, I'm really bad. Like people that, you know, work around me are always like, why don't you talk about it? I just, I'm just not that person. I can't do that. But <laughs> unless, of course, I'm asked in an interview. But um, it was an amazing experience. We make a lot of wedding cakes. So it's always like really cool to be a part of that 
an important day in people's lives. Um, and for that one, it was like on a world stage, which I had, had like I just couldn't have anticipated what that would feel like. Um, it was really amazing to be sort of, I don't know, just everybody cared about the cake for some reason. It was really cool. <laughs> so, yeah, no, it was amazing. And we now we serve uh, lemon elderflower cake. Uh, we have it on our menu and we do sell it by the slice. But we had a kind of cooling off period for about six months after um, after the wedding just to sort of because it was their cake and I didn't want to like, you know, felt rude. But now it's OK. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Just finally, what kind of plans do you have for the future? So, so the book is out in the UK already. It's going to be out in the US in the beginning of May. What what happens after that? Well, we're going to have a, a two-week tour of the US, actually. We're going to be in New York and LA and then go to Mexico City to finalize the, the, the book tour um, and see some friends. And and then coming back and back to work. We've got a lot of work to do. Um, growth with the, with the bakery and we have some other projects in the works, too. So, yeah. Do you want to mention anything about the projects? Well, I'm just, it's like, I feel like I've been talking about it for so long and it hasn't happened yet. So, <laughs> but I'm, I'm creating some cake mixes, which are going to be really amazing and I'm super excited about. But it, geez, is a long process. So hopefully they come out, you know. Claire Patak there. Her new book, Love is a Pink Cake, is already out in the UK and in the US a bit later this spring. You are with Monocle Radio. Mark Almert held the title of the world's best sommelier between 2019 and February 2023. The competition requires contestants to do written and practical tests, including blind tastings and role plays. It's grueling work, but for those in the business, it's the ultimate prize. Monaco's Alexei Korolev caught up with Mark in Vienna as he toured Austria before returning to his permanent posting at the Borolak Hotel in Zurich. It's very unusual for me to pour wine while sitting. <laughs> Usually I stand. Good, so what happens now? Well, first of all, we say cheers. 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 <laughs> Mark Almert wasn't planning to become a sommelier. From early childhood, he dreamed of a career in engineering. But this required a good grasp of mathematics, something he didn't have. Instead, he decided to take an apprenticeship at a hotel in his native Cologne in Germany. And that was when he discovered his calling. At first, though, he saw it as a hobby. Um, it was the first time that I really noticed that I liked some wines. And I was curious to discover why I liked some more than others and why some worked better in winter than in summer. Um, and I thought, this is a really nice hobby. I'm going to work towards becoming a hotel manager. And during that trainee program, I then noticed that actually it's more than a hobby. So I moved to the first wine region, to the Rheingau, which is close to Frankfurt, a very famous Riesling region. And there was the first time where I worked as a sommelier on the floor, as a junior somme. And then um, from there on, I moved to Hamburg, to a hotel called Fairmont Hotel Fjahreszeiten. More travel and postings followed, until in March 2019, and aged just 27, Mark won the ultimate prize, the world's best sommelier title. He held it for three years. How did it feel? Uh, well, the journey there was very exciting because it involved a lot of training, a lot of traveling, a lot of meeting both uh, winemakers, uh, sommeliers from around the world, but also other producers like beer producers, sake producers, all of that. Um, and of course, winning a title like that is always uh, something which is very rewarding and a very special moment in life. 
because then afterwards some things do change. You have a little bit more the possibilities to travel, to do certain projects and to meet even more interesting people. So that's um, really a life-changing moment. So what makes a good, and in Mark's case, the world's best, sommelier? Well, from the outset, it's a service industry. So you need to enjoy doing things for others. It's a very international and often also very hectic kind of work. So you have very different kind of guests. You have different team members. Every day is a bit different because you don't know what kind of guests you'll be having on that day, how many. Um, so there's a lot of spontaneous things. So you should be someone that needs maybe a little bit of structure on the one hand, but on the other hand is open to really having a new day every day and really interacting a lot with people, also in many foreign languages. And I think the key thing there to remember is I see the job or role as a sommelier as an ambassador because we don't do anything ourselves. A chef creates a dish, a bartender creates a cocktail. At the end of the day, we just serve drinks um, or other things maybe, but mainly drinks. But why do people need sommeliers? Um, I think there's some things you don't need a sommelier for. You don't need a sommelier to open a screw cap usually. You don't need somebody to... Um, know that certain high accolade wines are very good wines usually. Um, but I think what you do need for is that element of being a host, so creating a moment by putting the wine at the right temperature, in the right glass, in a decanter, yes or no, uh, with the right dish at the right timing, and just keeping a general eye on atmosphere at the table, and also to um, really discover new things. I mean, everybody knows Bordeaux maybe, um, but not about certain Greek varieties and Greek regions or any other emerging wine, or Greek beast is not really emerging, but nowadays emerging in our market, and really discovering new things, keeping an eye on trends. Rosé, when it started to be a trend, no one knew about until the sommeliers showed it. Now it's everywhere. So I think it's important for sommeliers to keep an eye on trends and to convey this message, again, being an ambassador to their guests. Uh, to be honest, it sounds like an awfully tiring job, you know, meeting new people all the time, explaining things over and over again. Do you ever get tired? I uh, know, because I think the nice thing is it keeps changing. There's a new vintage every time, there's new emerging regions, new emerging grapes, new generations taking over their estates. So, of course, some of the topics you've spoken about several times, but the topic itself evolves, and also the way you need to deliver it. I mean, let's look at staff training. 15, 20 years back, you would do that with an overhead projector or a flip chart. Nowadays, you have different technical possibilities. You can make small videos for your team, which they can see on the tram on the way to work. Um, so there's a lot of different things you can do to convey the same message. And I think it's quite interesting to try to always stay up to date. The job of a sommelier requires many skills. Approachability, patience, linguistic prowess, and above all, a superior knowledge of wine and winemaking. Sommeliers also make the best recommendations. So it was a special treat, his marks. Well, um, probably quite stereotypically, but the German sommelier brought a Riesling <laughs> from Germany. And it's uh, from one of the smaller regions, the Nahe. It's quite a small river, um, but historically a very important valley, especially for Riesling. And this is one of the very, very historic estates. And it's called Gut Hermannsberg. Um, it's an estate which, since the current ownership, has had a lot of investments going into it. And they are very unique because all of their sites are classified as Grand Cru sites or Große Lagen, as we say. Mm. And in fact, they have seven of those. Um, so the wine we have in front of us is a Riesling from 2020 called the Seven Terroirs because it's their, you, you could say, entry-level wine, which is a blend of these different very famous parcels. So this is a great way to get to know that kind of terroir in the Nahe which is um, very mixed. You have very different soils within a very small space of one another. And I think it's a very classic example of the now. Mark Almert, they're speaking to Monocle's Alexei Korolyov.
Up next, the week's food and drink headlines. Here is Monaco's Monica Lillis. French President Emmanuel Macron is offering Bordeaux's vineyards subsidies to remove 10,000 hectares of vines to reduce the region's surplus of wine. Around a third of Bordeaux's 4,000 winemakers are struggling financially as a result of a collapse in wine sales. President Macron will offer 57 million euros to encourage vintners to diversify their offering. This might include growing olives, kiwis, hops and hemp in a return to polyculture seen in the region until the 1980s. The global spice trade is under pressure as a result of rising energy and transport costs. The cost of using freight containers to ship to Europe was five times higher by mid-2022 than pre-pandemic levels. And when the spices arrive, many retailers fail to pass on the higher costs to the consumers, causing a shortfall in revenue for many small trade suppliers. The United Arab Emirates is the best-placed Middle East and Africa region in terms of food security and its ability to navigate supply chain disruptions, according to a new report. The Global Data Country Risk Index found that the UAE had the lowest risk among 56 countries in the region in the fourth quarter of 2022, followed by Israel, Saudi Arabia and Qatar. The streamlining of food supply chains is crucial due to the Middle East's heavy reliance on Russia and Ukraine for imports of staple food items. Listening to certain songs can influence the way that food tastes, according to researchers at Sweden's Örebro University. The findings show that higher tones makes sweets taste sweeter and lively pop tracks sung in higher registers work as so-called sonic seasoning. In previous studies, music has also been found to influence how quickly people eat and how much they consume as well as purchasing decisions. Those are the week's food and drink headlines. Now back to Marcus. Thanks, Monica. You are with Monocle Radio. We continue to Canada after this break. Tune in to Monocle on Culture, where we grill our panel of critics to get the inside line on the best in the world of film, music, art, literature and more. It's just got this synth section that kind of makes you want to swing through the saloon doors straight to the dance floor. With industry insiders and the odd bit of reportage too, it's bound to keep the most discerning of culture vultures very well fed. Why'd You Come In Here Looking Like That is a song that is absolutely going to make you want to put on a pair of tight jeans and go boot scooting, even if it's just in (laughs) your front room. Monocle on Culture, premiering Mondays at 2000 London time and available thereafter wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. You are listening to The Menu on Monocle Radio. Finally in the programme, Canada's maple syrup producers are in what you might call a sticky situation. Demand for maple syrup products has grown dramatically over the past few years. In 2021 alone, Canada's maple syrup exports were valued at nearly 600 million Canadian dollars. That's more than 400 million euros. But capacity hasn't kept up with demand. And as Monocle's Thomas Lewis reports, producers in Quebec are proposing a novel solution to be able to boost the quantity of maple syrup they are able to bring to the market. 2022 was a bumper year for maple syrup producers in the Canadian province of Quebec, which produces more than 70% of the maple syrup that's exported worldwide year on year. And last year was a record year for the province. 
more than £200 million of maple syrup were extracted from Quebec's maple trees, which cover more than 8 million hectares of land in the province. In one year alone, between 2020 and 2021, the federation that represents Quebec's maple syrup producers says that exports leapt by 20%. They grew by an additional 20% the year after that. But being able to keep up with that demand is proving to be a struggle. So producers have proposed a novel solution. They've asked Quebec's provincial government to open up swathes of publicly owned land to boost the number of maple trees they can siphon syrup from. The use of public land for the commercial harvesting of maple syrup in Quebec isn't new. The Federation of Quebec Maple Syrup Producers says that around 20% of its maple syrup exports originate from public land, or crown land as it's known in Canada. The Federation wants that expanded by 200,000 hectares. It says that without expanding production into public land in this way, it'll struggle to keep up with the international appetite for maple syrup made in Quebec. Some producers have also complained that the provincial government has been slow to fulfil its promises on opening up publicly owned forests to maple syrup production. The government, which is headquartered in Quebec City, says that it opened up 24,000 additional hectares last year, with a promise of 40,000 more, stating that balancing the use of publicly owned forests with the soaring demand for maple syrup is one that it has to consider carefully. The Federation of Quebec's maple syrup producers looks set to keep up the pressure as the maple farmers it represents continue to strive to fulfil their own pressures in ensuring that what's regularly described as Canada's liquid gold keeps flowing to consumers around the world. For Monocle Radio in Toronto, I'm Thomas Lewis. Thanks, Thomas. And that's all for this edition of The Menu. Remember that we're back with a new episode again on Friday at 2000 London time. That's at 1500 in Toronto. Meanwhile, do check out our menu spin-off show, Food Neighbourhoods. And obviously, you'll find many more reports on great hospitality from the brand's new edition of Monocle magazine. Subscribe now. I am Marcus Hippi. This programme was researched by Monica Lillis and our studio manager was Kelly McLean. Once again, we finished this program with a dinner soundtrack recommendation. Here are Calvin Harris and Dua Lipa with One Kiss. Thanks for listening and until next week. Mm-hmm.